Now, what's interesting is that when you set a goal that's impossible, and when you set a goal that's too easy, systolic blood pressure stays low. Systolic blood pressure goes up when you set a goal, that's the Goldilocks. Like not too easy, not too hard, but just right. What that means is that your body is not harnessing its energy. It's not getting ready to do anything when the goal is too hard. When I say like, you're kind of giving up even before you've gotten started, I actually mean that literally. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that research comes from Emily Balchettis, social psychologist, associate professor at NYU, and author of her new book, Clear, Closer, Better. Throughout today's episode, Balchettis divulges her current research into what successful work cultures embrace, how to set the Goldilocks goal, and why it could be as simple as just changing the optics. So look no further, folks, and please help me in welcoming the oh-so-real Emily Balchettis. Enjoy. With that being said, let's get this show on the road here. Here we go in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Emily Balchettis, associate professor at NYU, social psychologist and author of the book, Clear, Closer, Better. Emily, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much. So I got to be honest, I've been getting into psychology a lot, just reading some work about psychologists. We had Daniel Goleman on the other day. Uh, I had an interesting call with you about a month ago before this show. What got you into psychology? Well, the real story is that I wanted to be a rock star. Honestly, that was my first calling in life. I've been like music has been in our family uh, for generations. And that's what I went to college for, actually, is to study music performance. In high school, I was in this like punk ska cover band. And we had our 15 minutes of fame once when we played with our our favorite Los Angeles uh, punk ska group who was touring through. We asked if we could join them. They said sure, which I like still baffles me why they would say that. So we played this show with them for 15,000 people. Uh, yeah, but like I was also in marching band, right? So like those two lives don't jive. You don't get to be, you know, rocking out on stage, but also do marching band. So I think my, you know, like life decided for me, I was never going to make it as a, as a rock star. Um, but I did, yeah, I studied music performance in college and psychology and then you just had to choose for for my PhD. I chose to go into psychology, but really, I felt like that's actually just a way to keep all my doors open. Psychology is the study of people, and social psychology in particular is people. And I just thought, you know, like people are fascinating, and there's so much that we can ask and learn. That this is the home for me. I can, I can, I can people watch sitting at cafes and and call it scholarship if I want. <laughs> It's interesting. Now, let's take that for an example. Like, you got punk rock and then you got your marching band. Now, those are two kind of different groups. So when you're talking about like studying people in this sense, like why do you think people acclimate with one group versus another? I think, you know, at the heart of it, we are all driven to belong. We all have a fundamental need to belong. And you're just finding that group where you fit in. 
but also where you feel unique, right? It's kind of this fine balance. We have two, like two fundamental motivations as humans, which is, you know, to find a safe space, find a sense of social support and belonging, but also to individuate and find our unique niche. And so regardless of whether you you can find that balance within punk rock or you find it in country music or you find it in marching band or you find it in psychology, fundamentally, it's all the same thing. We're trying to find the type of people, the types of questions, the type of everyday life that resonates with us, that makes us feel like we're at home, but also gives us an opportunity for independence as well. Now, when we're in those groups, are we trying to establish some type of order, some type of hierarchy? Like in that group setting, what are some examples of some research that you've done that could tell our audience and myself a little bit about why, what people are trying to do in their groups for trying to be an individual within a, a, a niche? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, really people have their own individual goals. They have a goal. They have a goal that they're trying to work towards that might be relevant to this group. That group might be able to help support them. And one of the big things that people are trying to do is figure out, well, what you know, how can these people support my individual pursuits? That's something that people are looking towards when they're thinking about what goals do I have? What are my, you know, what's my bucket list? If that phrase resonates with you, um, we're looking for strategies. We're looking for tactics. We're looking for support to help us to accomplish those, those goals within the space that, that we've choose, chosen to be a part of. And so when we look at the people around us, that's something that we're looking for. Like, you know, can I help this person? Can this person help me in those things that maybe we're both trying to do together or maybe something I'm trying to tackle on my own? Mm. That's something that we can get out of groups is that sense of social support that provides like real concrete, tangible help when we need it or the moral support to push us through those moments when we just feel like this is overwhelming or this is really too challenging. Is that a survival mechanism that's that's evolutionary? That's just you know been advantageous for humans. Like, how did this develop? I think that idea of groups is advantageous for lots of animals, humans included. Think about schools of fish, right? Why why do those exist in the first mm. place? Because one little fish definitely looks like a tasty prey to a larger fish. But when all of those fish come together and hang out as a group, now they look a bit more menacing. They look a little bit more challenging for one of those bigger fish to take on. And that's that's a safety survival mechanism. The same thing for people, that we can do so much more in this world when we come together and we and we bring our collective diverse perspectives, experiences, and talents together, we can get a lot farther in life um, by hanging out in our own school of fish. And, and I, I want to get into that today because I think that's so interesting in terms of like success, like being new to a space and trying to make a name for yourself or trying to be the best that you want to be or whatever, however you define that, we'll find that out today. But I have an interesting example for you. Let's be the only story I tell you today. And this happened today, Emily. I'm on a call. I've got a client that is in Mississippi and he's got this, you know, Southern accent. Right. And he tells me, you know, we're talking about snowstorms today. And he's like, you know, I grew up in New York. I said, hold on one second. Kev, you grew up in New York? He said, yeah, I grew up in there from age nine. And he had a thick, cold accent, a cold, hot <laughs> dog accent. And then I moved to, you know, let's say Hicktown, Arkansas. And he moves to Arkansas and he gets a Southern accent. He acclimates, he gets Southern accent. Then he goes to Ole Miss. And his accent, Emily, was so thick and he was a smart kid in his class, but they thought he was dumb because he couldn't pronounce words the certain way. So he had to, which is kind of a funny part, he had to have a tape recorder and speak into the tape recorder and then listen to himself again 
to understand you know how he talks now what are some problems that people maybe it's some prejudice maybe it's something that we are it's difficult for us to understand when a newcomer comes in and they're different than us yeah, I mean, that's, I find that to be a sad example, actually, about, you know, humanity and how we want to quickly divide up the tribes of you are, you are a part of us, you're not part of us, and and how, you know, superficial of cues almost that we, we use and we rely on to make that differentiation between our in-group versus our out-group. Mm. But that sadly is a fact of life. That is how we carve up the world of, of who's like me, who's not like me. And our default is to be a bit wary of people who are different. That does a real big disservice <laughs> to us, right? By um, by being wary, by being afraid, or by being mistrusting of somebody who's on the outside, because it means that we're not taking advantage of the diversity of that person's lived experience, right? The accent's different, sure. But so is the life that that person may have led, the skills that they have developed, uh, the kinds of questions that they can answer and the talents that they bring to the table. It's totally common. It's totally human nature to do what we call thin slice people. You take just a very small amount of information, maybe the first five seconds, right? We're listening to that accent and we make snap judgments. They're not like us. They're from the outside. They probably, you know, like you were saying, this like this person might not be as smart because they have a, a different kind of accent than I, all of which is not true, right? Like you can't actually make that inference, but people do. People do make those kinds of attributions about others within just a very, with a very thin slice of knowledge. And, and that can be troubling. That can be problematic because we cut ourselves off from other forms of social support, other other people who might join our team and offer a broader, more diverse perspective that in the long run is going to be the basis for innovation, for creativity, for helping us overcome problems that we're facing because they may have already been there first. So, yeah, human nature, something to be uh, to be aware of, to realize that we're cutting off our own potential or our team's potential or organization's potential by doing that, that thin slice. It exactly, and I couldn't agree with you more in terms of the diversity perspective of that. Now, the book that comes out, the Clear, Closer, Better. Mm-hmm. In the book, I believe you shared a little bit about your personal journey and about kind of the research that you had also done. Maybe explain to our audience that background and kind of how the book developed. Yeah, sure. So the paperback version of the book's coming out in a couple days. So I'm excited to get to talk to you about it right before it comes out. Uh, the book is taking the 15 or 20 years of research that I've done with my team on motivation and trying to understand where, you know, what are people's goals and when what are the obstacles that they're facing? And can we offer new tactics to circumvent, overcome, work through those obstacles to help them move farther, faster, get there better than they would otherwise without these tactics? So that's what we're doing is calling all of this research that we've conducted over this time um, to explore, well, what do people do when they're thinking about their goals? Um, some common strategies are that people, you know, talk to themselves in encouraging ways. Like, you can do it. Come on. You got it in you. Um, or they leave themselves little, you know, post-it notes constantly reminding and perhaps even like nagging themselves like you need to be working on this. But those strategies don't work. Right. Those are what people most commonly do. And they're not effective tactics. Why? Because they're exhausting, because you've got to always remember to do it. And we can't always be on top of that kind of like personal positive talk or leaving the right post-it notes or we get used to those post-it notes and we don't even pay attention to them anymore. So we're offering other strategies. And the four strategies that this book has to offer are all about literally seeing the world in different ways. At the heart of it, when we're thinking about like 
making decisions about, you know, am I going to go out to dinner and, and have this entree or this entree? Or am I going to go for a run today? Or is today my day off? When we're making those big decisions, like we have to think about what are the options? What does it look like outside? Does it look like I can go for, for a run today or not? Does it look like my goal would be too far away? Do I even think that I could make it? If my goal is to, you know, run a mile, do I think I can make that mile? And our answers might be yes or no. And that might mean that we go out for that walk or that run or we don't. But part of our assessment of whether we think this is something we can take on comes back to how we're literally looking at the world around us. Let me give you a concrete example that I think might help set the stage when we're talking about um, exercise, for instance. This is some of the first work that, that my team and I did. I started first by interviewing Olympic athletes, some of the world's fastest runners that are out there, like the fastest guy out of Trinidad, um, a silver medalist out of Tobago in the, in the last Olympic Games, a couple Olympic Games ago, actually, at this point. And I thought, like, well, how do they do it? Right. That was my question. How are they? How are they like the fastest runners in the world? What strategies are they using as they're looking around at the competition? Well, I thought that's what they do. They are like literally looking at the competition. Like, where am I? Where are they? They're like, oh, he's coming up on behind me. And I was totally wrong. They don't do that at all. Right. Maybe that was in intuitive to you. But for me, I was like, I, right. I was flummoxed by that. I was like, really? You don't like, you don't even know where the next guy is. If you're in the lead or if you're second, you don't know where the guy up ahead of you is. No, because they said what they do is choose a goal and they focus on that goal. They only look at that goal, the finish line up ahead, the end of the curve that they're about to round. And that's all that they're looking at. They set their own goal. They're narrowly focused on it. And they attribute that to be the reason um, that they are who they are, the fastest runners in the world. And so that led us to ask, well, like maybe the rest of us, even when we're not in the Olympic Games and we're just trying to get healthy, maybe we're doing the wrong thing, too. Maybe we're looking the wrong way. So we taught people to use that strategy the Olympic athletes use. We taught them to choose a goal in their environment. It might be the stop sign that's a couple blocks ahead. It might be an interesting mural in a building and to focus on it as they're trying to walk farther or run faster. And what we found is that induced a visual illusion it made that goal look closer to them than it would otherwise. When they narrowed their focus of attention, that stop sign uh, looked, looked closer to them. And that had a whole like, downstream effect on their psychology. Now they felt like, oh, this isn't going to be so hard. That goal isn't that far away. I think I can do it. I'm actually, I'm excited to try to do this. It changed their psychological mindset and it produced amazing downstream consequences. They walked 23% faster when we tested this in the lab. They said it hurt 17% less. And this is like, we didn't change the distance. Right. The exercise that people were doing was exactly the same. It's just that that change in their visual experience changed their psychology, and that changed how well they were able to perform. How, you know, how, how intense was their exercise right now? And because it was better than they thought it would be, they kept it up. When we used a fitness tracker and had access to their accounts and we could see, like, do they keep this up when we're not watching? The answer is yes. They continue to go out for more walks after this. They continue to take more steps uh, and engage in more intense exercise. So that's a concrete example of what I mean of like, if we can teach people to look at their world differently, can we help them meet their goals in a more effective and, and better way? And in this context of studying exercise, the answer was yes, we could. Interesting. Okay. I have a lot of questions for you. The first one's this, when you reach a goal, when that runner reached his goal, what's the attitude right after that happens? 
It cut out a little bit. What's that attitude? What's the perception when you achieve a goal? What does a successful person in this scenario do next? Uh, it cut out again. But what I think you're asking is like, well, what's next? What's going on what's in their next? in their mind? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's that hit. There's a hit of satisfaction. I did it. That's great. And that that produces all kinds of psychological and physiological responses. We're now motivated to, to do it again, especially mm. when it didn't hurt as much. It felt easier um, than we expected it would be in the first place. So that's why that um, this this cycle of like holding an expectation, having that expectation be defied. This was a better experience than I expected. How that can produce this downstream cascade consequence kind of um, effect that produces a motivation for the long run. So, you know, the bigger perspective or the bigger takeaway from this that I could offer is that it's also important to think about what's the level of difficulty when we set goals. If we set goals that are too hard, we give up before we've even really gotten started. And that's the problem with New Year's resolutions. Usually people are like, new year, new me, new me, right? Like that's huge. Why would anybody ever decide like I need to totally reinvent myself? But people do every single year, every single New Year's day. And within two weeks, most people have given up. And the reason why is because they've set this goal that's just impossible to achieve. And so after working hard for two weeks and they see no progress, except that it hurts, right? And this is a difficult change, then people give up. There's the other side though. If we set goals that are too easy and think like, all right, well, like, you know, I'm gonna, here's my to-do list for the day. And on my to-do list, I say, I'm gonna start writing a to-do list. No one feels good about like having written their to-do list. They're not like mission accomplished. I can throw in the towel for the rest of the day. No, because we knew we could write a to-do list. That doesn't give us like a hit of satisfaction that's going to be sustaining for the whole rest of the day or the whole rest of the week that it might take for us to to master that to-do list. When we set goals that are too easy, we don't get that hit of satisfaction from having met that goal because we didn't doubt that we could, right? So having mastered or accomplished this goal that we never doubted we would be able to doesn't produce a long-standing feeling of success that that is inspiring. So when we think about setting goals, we really want to try to find that sweet spot between the two. Maybe you think about that like the Goldilocks principle, not too easy, not too hard, but just somewhere in the middle, just right. When we set a goal that's just slightly beyond what we think is possible right now, Mm. And then we break it down and think about the concrete steps it's going to take for us to get there and and plan for the obstacles we might experience along the way. When we meet that goal, then we feel pride. We feel happiness. We feel success. And that, you know, that cascade of positive experience then um, is uh, is reinforcing. And we want to try for that again. So that's what I would suggest. Right. Is like thinking about you know, intentionally about where am I setting this goal? What is this level of difficulty for me? And don't try to shortchange ourselves and set goals that are too easy, but don't try to, you know, shoot for the moon when we haven't yet built our own rocket. Got it. It makes a lot of sense. Now, what about this though? So you're talking about like reinforcements, the short wins, they'll give you the positive behavior, but what's not reinforcing is when you don't reach the goals, when you fall down And when you have to fight through those days that you don't want to do what you want to do, is that mentioned in your book at all about trying to trying to overcome the negative self-talk and the, the, you know, the challenges? 
Totally. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, a, that's the reason why most of us um, struggle is that once we hit that first obstacle, what do we do about it? What I like to talk about first is um, step one, which is like, let's try to prevent that in the first place. Oh, we got a Zoom bomber here. Bring him in. Bring him uh, in. Yeah, Who is this? Who is this? This is Maddie, my four-year-old son. He's in the book Maddie. a lot too. I try out all these tactics. What's up, uh, managing my own, my own life. And I apply these tactics to myself, managing my career, managing a new family. Right. And also I tried to learn how to play drums while he was one year old. So you get to learn a little bit about Maddie too. Uh, uh, in, in the book. <laughs> um, so yeah, when we talk about obstacles, what we're talking about is uh, he's, he's being forcibly removed from this it's, room. It's all now. good. Like we've seen, we have not, there's nothing <laughs> we haven't seen on this show. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so yeah, so try to prevent it in the first place. So something that, you know, when people are setting goals, you know, we want mm -hmm. that high level ambition. Like what is my vision for myself? make that do have that be something intentional an intentional part of goal setting second is think concretely about how am i going to get there what can i do this week that's going to help push me towards that that end goal and yeah we probably do that too but then the next step at the goal setting stage is think about okay what are the three or four ways that this might not work out for me and what will i do when that happens so before we've mm -hmm. even like gotten out of the starting blocks, we should think about what those obstacles might be and come up with the plan B and the plan C. Because when we're in that moment of possible disaster or throwing us off course, or maybe you know those challenges that might lead us to throw in the towel, we wanna know in advance what we're gonna do. We don't have the resources then to try to figure out a solution while we're in the middle uh, of turmoil. I like to think about it like if a ship is sinking, you already want to know where those life preservers are. That's not the moment that you want to go scouring the ship to try to find them. It's the same with goal setting. There's a great example in the book about Michael Phelps, right? We all know that name. He's he's one of the most accomplished Olympic athlete of all time, having won more gold medals right, in a single Olympic game and over his career than anybody else. And this is part of his, his goal setting um, strategy is that three-step process. Now, when he was practicing for his first Olympic Games in Beijing, he would practice having his goggles start to leak. He would practice with his coach having smashed his goggles on, on, the, on the floor right before he dove into the water. And it's a good thing that he practiced for that because that actually happened when he was on the doorstep of doing something that no other Olympian has ever done, which is win eight gold medals in a single Olympic game. As he dove into the pool for his 200 fly, his goggles started to leak. If he won, if he won this uh, race, he would win that eighth gold medal. But pretty quickly, he was swimming blind. You couldn't see anything. The goggles were completely filled with water. Now, I would have totally panicked if I was in that situation. I would never be in that situation because I can hardly swim at all. But if I was in that situation, I feel like I'd be a, a goner. But for him, he was totally chill about it the whole time because he had practiced for that. So what did he do? Turn to plan B, which he had already rehearsed, which is start counting his strokes. Right. So as he's swimming the last length of the pool, he knew exactly how many strokes it takes for him to get from one end to the other. And he did that swim, swam without being able to see. And he won that 200 fly. He won his eighth gold medal and he would go on to win 15 more in his career. So that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, yeah, we're going to face obstacles. And usually facing those obstacles is the make it or break it for most of us. What can we do so that isn't uh, an instant break it? Like we don't throw in the towel then is take time at the planning stage. When we have more resources, we have more time, we have more bandwidth, we're not in crisis mode. And think about what will we do if X happens? 
like, um, you know, if I'm, you know, if my goal is to, uh, you know, increase product revenue by 10% this quarter and you're only at 8% and you've only got two months left to go, what are you going to do about that? You know, you want to know, you don't want to be freaking out then or putting extreme pressure on your team. That's not what you want to do, right? That's not going to make for a good leader, but you want to know what would be your, your strategy or your solution in advance. So that in that moment, uh, when things are looking not so good, you already know what you're going to try to do. Recalibrate your goals for the next quarter, or you're going to pull out this new plan that you had already started to develop in advance. But there's always those chances that plan B doesn't work. Right. And maybe plan C doesn't work. Um, you know, that that has happened. That happens to people all of the time. You can think about like taking a step back then and thinking about trying to look for the forest rather than the tree or looking for a new route through the forest. You can't find that new route when you're on a particular trail. Right. You need to come up, get a higher level perspective and see a new way through that forest so that you can end up on the other side. Now, a great example that I that I talk about in the book is Vera Wang. We, we know Vera Wang, right? She's the, the queen of tools. She's the wedding dress designer to the stars. I mean, see, that's what she that's what we probably know her for best is the empire of fashion design. What I didn't know until I started digging into her is that her first career actually was in figure skating. She was a, a world-renowned figure skater. And, um, you know, in her, her late teens, early 20s, that was her career. That is what she was doing, was figure skating. And she was great at it, um, but she never quite hit the top. She wanted to be the best. She was coming in second place. She was coming in third place. Amazing, right? I would be totally proud of any kid of mine that had that. I'd be so proud of myself. But she was realizing, you know what? I just don't think this path is going to be for me. I don't think I'm going to get what I want, which is to be the top of the game if I stick with figure skating. So she quit. Hmm. She quit. Now, some people might say like, you know, like, I don't think anyone would say it about her. But if that happened to you, you might feel like I failed. You might use that word to describe that experience. I failed at what my goal was because I didn't make my entire career be about figure skating. But she didn't think about it that way. She took a year to try to get a higher level perspective, to see that forest and find a new path forward. And after a year at the Sorbonne in Paris, she decided to take up fashion. And that's not she does not see that as a change in her life. She sees that as another path to the same goal. Her love is of line. You know, the the art of line. And as a figure skater, you're literally cutting lines into the ice. And as a fashion designer, you are literally carving lines out of uh, out of cloth, right? To, to make art out of people or you're making art on the ice. So we might see that as totally different from the outside. Like she had this 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 great career in figure skating, and then she became this designer. And how did she recreate herself? Well, she doesn't talk about it as recreation. She just found another path through that forest to achieve what she's loved all along. So that's something else that we can consider. Like when we face those obstacles and we introspect, we call in outsiders' perspectives and opinions, and we realize, you know what? I don't think that this trail is going to get me out of this forest. That's a time to take a step back and decide what is it that I really want? What is it that I really love? And this path that I've been like, you know, going down and this door I've been beating my head against when this is not working, I have to find a new way forward. And you don't need to use the words failure. Because that is so off-putting. That is demotivating. It's about reinventing or it's about 
growth opportunities. It's about innovation. Those are better words to use that um, doesn't make us feel sad or disappointed. Um, And instead, it's just about finding a new way through that forest. So is success to you then an inside job? You just said it was introspective. You got to reach out to external perspectives to kind of figure out who you are, what you want to do. Obviously, she didn't, you know, win the medals she wanted to reach. Uh, I mean, for you, like, is success an inside job? I mean, yeah, it's part inside, um, but it's also outside. I would never say go it alone, right? We started our whole conversation talking about the importance of social support and finding that place where you belong and how important it is that we, you know, either you can call it build your own personal board of directors to help guide you on your way. There's people that you really trust that you can be honest with and you'll listen to the feedback that they have to give. Um, Or you can think about the people that you can rely on uh, for other tangible elements of support that you might need besides just the open ear. Yeah, you can't go it alone. And um, yeah, and that's really that's really something to think about, especially when we're in those moments where we're up against some pretty big hurdles. There's some really inspiring companies out there, some of which I mean, all of which you probably heard of, but maybe you don't know that the strategies that they use Mm -hmm. how do they deal with obstacles and they don't go it alone. You can think about like, how does the sort of stereotypical corporate American life uh, play out? Um, people get paid. You get paid bonuses if you do a good job. So you want to showcase all of your good work. We have, you know, maybe quarterly, maybe yearly evaluations where we tell our boss all of the amazing things that we got done this year. And we try to figure out a way to smooth over all the wrinkles And that may be what is used um, as a basis for determining our bonus in the future. That kind of style of motivation, that kind of culture that is created where we highlight our successes and we try to, you know, push our failures or our challenges under the rug. That is not innovating. And it's um, and it doesn't it doesn't lead people to find their greatest potential to grow themselves. So there's there's a great example of Google X. X is a division of Google that is responsible for some of their greatest innovations. Like, you know, driverless cars were first mm-hmm. started by this group and um, contact lenses that can monitor uh, for glucose levels for patients with diabetes, like amazing things that can change the world in so many ways. These products and design innovations are coming out of X. Now, what do they do? They don't go it alone. They don't try to hide their failures. Instead, they literally have like science fairs where they get different um, different teams together at different points in the year to talk about the challenges that they're facing, almost like calling in calling in the backup team. Right. Here's what we're up against. Here's where, you know, where we think it's not working. This is where we're stuck. Can you help? Rather than a spirit of competition where the best team is going to get the biggest bonus or get the best reward or get their their name on the next um, you know product design innovation award, they are uh, transparent about the problems that they're facing. They do like debriefs as a team where they're looking for fatal flaws in a project. And when they find those fatal flaws, they present what they think might be fatal flaws to other teams to ask and to assess like, is this project done for? Is there a way to work around this? Or are we right that this isn't going to go anywhere? So they're not hiding it from uh, other team members. They're not hiding it from other teams. They're showcasing. They're asking for help. And there's transparency there. 
And that works because they're not investing in sunk costs. People are not doubling down, trying to fix a problem so that their boss doesn't find out that they made a mistake. They can they can kill projects faster. They can move on uh, more effectively by being open about where they need help and the challenges that they're facing. Mm. What else do they do besides these like science fairs, in a sense, is that bosses stand up and applaud when a team says, hey, we think we found a fatal flaw. They get applause from mm. teammates. Interesting. Um, they get they get time off to reinvent themselves as a team to figure out what they want to do next. Sometimes they get paid. They get paid to to um, to to find these flaws. They get a bonus not for doing something great, but for finding a, a project that they should probably cut their ties on. So that's a way that these organizations, well, like X, institutionalizes um, honesty. A way that it's okay, um, you know, to to accept the possibility and the likelihood of failure or facing obstacles and not to stigmatize it because they realize that that's where innovation comes from is from accepting the possibility that things aren't going to work out and to bring that collective, not going it alone, but working together to think about the pros and the cons, what's working, what's not working about every particular project. That's how they can move so fast and do things that no other company has ever done. Interesting. That's a unique example. And it seems like more project-based too. Like, if your employees are working toward a goal, and I, I picked up a little thing in there too, you said working toward potential, and I, was, I would assume that's somewhat of a, of a success signal. So when they're working towards this goal, they're able to kind of, you know, have some type of engagement, some sense of, dare I say, meaning, you know, in those projects, which really unlocks the innovation. Now, you gave this example about the runner, and that's, you know, it's just a singular person. When it comes to a team sport, though, the goals might change that you have to work together to achieve it. Parts have to kind of come together. So when it comes to kind of clear, closer, better from a team perspective to what you just mentioned, how do your principles work? Uh, It's a combination of um, as a team, we need to have that vision. What is it that we're all working towards? And you're going to have different levels of buy-in, right? So if we're on a team, there's probably there's probably a hierarchy and probably somebody has played a larger role in deciding what is it that we're working towards. Um, somebody has hired you, for instance, and they probably have a bigger say in what it is that that you're doing. Um, and that's okay, right? We don't we might not all have a hundred percent you know intrinsic motivation to accomplish this thing that we're doing. That's fine, but we want to make sure it's clearly articulated. As a team, what are we striving towards? And we want to know that. We want to have that that sort of end end game made clear. But then we do want to find if we are the leader, if we are the manager, we're the supervisor, we're in charge, we're the managing director, we want to find ways to get that kind of individual buy-in. We need people to be able to have some autonomy in designing their path towards towards this goal. That's really important. And in fact, um, there's a cool study that I know about that that I think really exemplifies this. There's a large Dutch telecom company that had set as a company-wide goal sustainability. They're working on sustainability. For this quarter, what we're going to focus on is recycling. And we want fewer pieces of paper and paper cups in the garbage can. We want more of them in the recycling can. 
okay, great. You know, most people can get on board with sustainability, but not everybody is going to feel like a true intrinsic passion to throw their paper cups in the recycling bin, right? So that's what I'm talking about of like, this was very important to the highest levels of management in the company and probably to a lesser degree, people down, down the chain. Um, you know what the first step was that this company did was tell everybody, this is our goal. All right. We're going to, cl- we clearly articulated this to all employees in the company and they had, you know, groups going around um, to explain why, why is this our goal? Why is this part of our identity now? And why are we asking you to help us? So they did all that communication, right? They made it. Then secondly, they made it easy for people to recycle. They put recycling bins next to people's individual desks. So there's a trash can and a recycling bin. Couldn't be easier. And and now you know why it's there and we're asking that you help us. And what they found was that, you know, on um, they had people that were they they swapped out the regular cleaning crew and put in researchers every night that collected all the garbage cans and recycling cans. And they literally went through and counted. And what they found is that about twelve hundred cups were being thrown away um, each week. And on all of those cups could have been recycled. And when they, when they unfolded this goal and made it easy for people to do, they found no change. There was no change. It was still about 1,200 cups that were being thrown away. So is it that people don't care? Is it that they didn't communicate it the right way? No, that's not it. What they, what they next did in the next couple weeks of this plan was that they thought like, let's get better individual buy-in. This is our high level vision for the company, but we need to have this resonate with, with each individual employee. So they asked them to make a plan. What will you do? What can you do to help us with this sustainability and recycling goal? And so people came up with like, you know, little phrases that they wrote down, hopefully on a piece of paper that they recycled. That said things like, (laughs) um, if I have a paper cup, I'll throw it in the recycling. If I have some papers that I'm getting rid of, I'll put them in the recycling. It's not magic. It's not rocket science, but they are statements that individuals themselves created and committed Mm -hmm. to by, you know, in a sense, writing their own little contract. They didn't have to turn those, those pieces of paper into their boss. They just took a minute, thought about it for themselves. What can I do? And what we saw with the data show is that that dropped. The amount of things that that showed up in the trash that could have been recycled went from about 1,200 pieces a week to less than 200. Hmm. That drop was sustained for weeks, for months later, even when the team took away the recycling bins from each individual desk and put just larger bins in a communal space. Hmm. So even when it was harder, because people had that individual buy-in. Right. Um, uh, that was aligned with the collective community goal, they were able to sustain those recycling efforts. Mm. So some like self-accountability, some self-responsibility, I am going to do this as an individual. Yeah. Now, that's interesting because I wanted to make this, I wanted to bring this case study out about the Stanford prison experiment where people are anonymous and they're not individuals themselves. And what happens, what may have come out of human nature when we aren't responsible, i.e. bots on Twitter. Uh, People don't have to see each other face to face. They can tweet and they can say whatever they want, maybe anonymously. What do you see now with kind of what's going on with social media? What's what's going on maybe in a company when you're kind of in the back corner and your face isn't here and you're not within the group, you're not in that team. 
how important is it that people do take that self accountability? And then what also do you see kind of with go, what's going on in the world of uh, social media? Yeah, that Stanford prison experiment, there's just so much to unpack. I'm sure you could yes. have so many I've different debated, very, very much yeah. debated too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's so much that's going on, um, you know, with that whole past experience that social psychologists have have uh, have seen play out. So there's a couple of things that you could say. First of all, in that Stanford prison experiment, the idea, in case your listeners don't know, is that people were, you know, supposedly randomly assigned to the role of um, police officer um, or prisoner. And what they found was that um, those police officers ended up engaging in uh, violent acts against uh, the prisoners, mm-hmm. all in the context. Yeah, right. Like like just mean, emotionally abusive, uh, withholding of basic fundamental human rights in, in many senses. And so you could say like, well, each of those guards was known. They they weren't like anonymous and they are treating prisoners who were not anonymous. These are people. They are interacting with these people in ways that are inhumane. Um, so is it that we need anonymity to um, to be mean to each other? In social media, I think, yes, I think that anonymity or, you know, you're not seeing somebody face to face is contributing to the problem. Right. Um, I mean, maybe that that username isn't even that person's username. Maybe that picture isn't even who they are. In lots of cases that that's true. Um, But I think that Stanford prison experiment shows us like, well, you don't actually have to have anonymity to produce violence. Social context matters. That's the that's what is true about all of these uh, experiences. Is that you can take good people and you can put them in situations where um, that won't bring out the best, that bring out the worst in people. And social media is a social context, right? It is a platform where people can do horrible things to each other. Adolescent bullying is rampant on social media. Adult bullying is rampant on social media as well. And maybe some of the things that people are saying to each other, they wouldn't say face-to-face, or it might be harder to say when you have, when you can see somebody's emotional reaction to what you're saying and our humanity comes out a little bit more, but that's not always the case. That's the Stanford prison experiment. People are complex. That's that's the takeaway from from this is that we shouldn't try to blame um, our our aggression um, or our lack of humanity on social media. It's a platform, but there are plenty of opportunity. Right. And I know that's not what you're saying, but I think lots of people might want to try to say, like, it's created something awful for us. I think a lot of people are grateful for social media, especially during quarantine and this pandemic, because it's it's given a chance to shrink our worlds as well. My research team has grown during this time because uh, because we can all t- come together on Zoom. We have people that are coming from Bosnia, from California, from Canada, from Mexico, you know, from Shanghai, and we can all join together and have really amazing conversations and and try to tackle some of you know our biggest motivational challenges all together in a way that didn't happen when we used to just all meet in a boardroom face to face in person. So I'm grateful for some social media platforms, um, but it's a tool like any other. A tool can be destructive or it can be constructive, and we just have to be aware of how we are personally using it. And I liked what you said about like conscious efforts too, like in those group settings and kind of how that, you know, if you had social media and you were going to make a conscious effort to be a good human being, you wouldn't do the things that a lot of people are doing online. So like when it comes to a higher consciousness, 
Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do you implement that into a culture and also like take that upon yourself? I was, I've just been thinking about this a lot um, in the last couple of days, especially about parenting. I know not everyone's a parent on this call, uh, but I think this applies to more than just parenting. Like when you have a responsibility for helping cultivate mm. a culture or cultivating a, the next adult human that, that'll be a part of your family, it's kind of the same thing. What can we do, especially during this time where there is a social, a literal social distance happening where it is harder to connect with people? You know, a lot of parents' fears are like, you know, my kid is going to be like socially awkward, right? Like he's four years old, mine is four years old. And like, he needs to be able to see other kids so he can realize he can't be a jerk, right? He needs the, he needs that socialization. Parents are really worried about that right now. Mm. And so too should cultures, you know, what is happening to our workplace and organizational dynamics when it's been at least a year since we've all been together as a team? Are we going to be like, are we as effective right now? Do we have the same camaraderie when we don't have those, those moments to bond? And it literally is just like, let's get the job done and get off this zoom call. All right. So um, so I've been thinking about that a lot. And here's a couple of things that I was thinking about in terms of parenting. I just put out this article yesterday, actually, as tips for parents that I think apply to people who are running organizations as well. Make music together. That It sounds like, okay, I would never do that. I'm never going to like bring out my ukulele and play along with my boss. <laughs> but if you are the boss, think about, well, is there a way that you can make music together as a team? First of all, it'll be different and fun because probably if you're not a musician, you're probably not doing that on your Zoom calls. But what making music together does is help create um, synchrony, right? right. Musicians are literally listening to each other. And that's something that we're missing right now is the opportunity to really practice listening to each other and coordination, right? When you're making music, you are coordinating, you're coordinating your body, you're coordinating your movements, you're coordinating the sounds that you're making. So you can practice developing or maintaining social skills by, by working on music together. Mm -hmm. And that's just something fun to try. Um, another thing is to, think about similarities rather than differences. I think a lot of times we're trying to differentiate ourselves from the competitors or in America in particular, a very individualist oriented country. Like, you know, some of our military country mottos are be all you can be. It's not be all we can be, be all you can be. It's very self uh, promoting, self focused, not saying that that's bad, um, but it, it leads us to be thinking about differences more than similarities. And that is creating a social divide. So if we want to create or maintain or foster a sense of communi- communality that we're lacking right now, take some time to practice thinking about what do I have in common? What do I have in common with you? What do I have in common with my next door neighbor who I only see when we're dumping out garbage together? That might be challenging. But when we realize, you know, um, that we have more in common than we have that's different, that 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 trope, it's it's not baseless. It, it helps us to train our brain into thinking about our bigger society, our place in it and how we relate to each other. Um, so these are a couple strategies that I've been thinking about lately for how we can you know, maintain our community despite these challenges that we're facing right now. I love that. I love the music example, too. With like yeah. the Synchronization and also understanding because it's like if you're playing let's say tom petty someone comes over oh tom petty oh we're t- okay we're tom petty fans you know whatever yeah, right you know, it's a way to connect with people too and i love like abraham lincoln's quote or something like this, something along the lines of like i don't like that man i've yet 
I, have, I must get to know him, I think was the yeah. quote or something right. like that. Yeah. So right. being able to go past that surface level is is very important. Um, now, one of the things I, I, I picked up and you were talking about like Michael Phelps and I know he came out with this book called like The Weight of Gold. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously prestige, won a ton of gold medals, but what comes after that is very difficult. And how do you, like, where do you find now that fulfillment for the mm-hmm. rest of your life? And I get what you're saying, the introspective, the, the cutting of the ice skater now is cutting the cloth. It's that right. same purpose, that same meaning. What are some steps, and do you provide any steps in your book to really uh, unravel that purpose, that meaning that aligns with your path, your career, and what you perceive as happiness? I think if we all take a minute to to think about some of the biggest moments of our life. We probably have that Michael Phelps experience, the weight of gold experience. Um, when I think about it myself, you know, again, I studied music. That's that's what my first career path I thought would be. And so as a musician, it meant that, you know, for four years of my musical career, it was building towards this culminating final project that would, you know, decide whether I graduate with a music performance degree or I don't. So I was working towards this um, this performance, this production that I was putting on of the, all of my musical skills. So I've been working on, I was working on that for a really long time and it went great. It was, it was phenomenal. It was so much fun. I felt like I nailed it. I was really proud of myself. And then I woke up the next day and I was depressed. And I was like, what? What is, what's happening? It, yesterday was great. Why do I feel like I can't get out of bed today. I'm not, t- I'm not tired. It's not like yesterday was like so grueling that I, that I need to sleep it off today. I was depressed and that like set in within a day. And then my wedding, my wedding was amazing. It went off. It was so great. It was so fun. We had it exactly the way we wanted three days of a great party. We woke up the next day and I was like, now what, <laughs> you know, because in both of those moments, it had been working towards a goal that was really, you know, core to who I was as a person, then it was mission accomplished. And then you sort of lost your purpose, or it might feel that way, or at least it did for me. And that's what that like depression after my performance was, or the like, now what sort of state of lostness the day after I got married. And um, and I think, you know, probably a lot of people can resonate with that. You just did something really huge and you had probably been investing most of your focus and effort and energy, especially in those last few days or weeks. And now all that is gone. That pressure, that direction, that sense of purpose is gone. So first of all, accept mm. that. That's normal, right? That is, And that means that it's done, right? The goal, you met that goal. And just live in that space for a little bit. And maybe you call it depression and fine, mm-hmm. accept it, but you'll move through it. Or maybe you call it feeling lost. That's okay. That's okay. We don't always have to be moving forward. Sometimes it's okay to just be and see where the next uh, pang of excitement or the next moment of inspiration comes from. And so rather than feeling, I have to keep going, I have to keep going. We need that yin and yang in our energies right? After we just did something big, it's okay to come down and feel like, I don't know which, whether to go left or right right now, mm. live in that space until something organically comes up that, that tells you whether you should go left or go right. And I think we rarely give ourselves those, um, you know, the opportunity just to accept, to just be who we're going to be and let those feelings feel how they are, especially when we can, you know, pinpoint that they're coming from having just accomplished this really big goal, being done this really big thing. 
Um, and we don't talk about that enough, right? Like I don't, I don't read a lot of people saying like, I just got married. It was amazing. And tomorrow is going to suck. Interesting. <laughs> Nobody said like, you know what? The day after your wedding, it really does suck. You, you've like not, even when you married the man you were supposed to marry or the woman you were supposed to marry, the next day might just suck. No one says that to you, <laughs> at least not to me. So I was surprised, but I think we can talk about it more and know that it's okay. And those feelings will pass. Let's talk about it more then. I think that's so interesting. I've never heard that. And, but I, but I can relate to it. And I think that you made a good point that everyone can relate to what I call being in the hole. Like you're yeah. in the hole. Like you, you just had a great week and then, gosh, I just did all that stuff. Felt so good. And then I made this decision. I made this choice and here I am stuck again. What about addiction though? What about addiction? We talk a lot about addiction and therapies for it. Do you, from a clinical perspective, have any advice for you know, or or experience with dealing with addicts? Uh, first of all, I'm not a clinical psychologist, so uh, you know I, I don't prescribe medication so, and I don't see I don't see patients. That's uh, not the form of psychology that that my career okay. takes. But I have talked with a lot of addicts to explore um, these issues of motivation because there are a lot of similarities for somebody who wants to be healthy, take a non-addict whose goal is to, I want a healthy lifestyle that requires, that may require change to every, you know, to every day of their life for the rest of their life. Dieting, this is just a quick aside before I get back to the idea of addiction, you know, dieting doesn't work. Dieting doesn't work because, uh, because maintaining a healthy weight, if that's what your goal is, um, requires that it be an, an ongoing goal that you never stop working on. Mm. So, you know, there's a big study that was done of like all different kinds of diets, whatever, whatever it might be a, a trend right now, or something that you think works for you. Um, they do help people lose weight. That's not to say people have made it up or their scale is lying to them. It does help people lose weight. But when you look at five years down the road from when people hit their ideal goal, nearly everybody has, has moved away from it. They gained weight back. And in fact, two thirds of people have gained back more weight than they lost. Right. Right. Not effective. And if the goal, you know, dieting doesn't work because when we, cause that, cause the term is, is wrong. It's the wrong if, goal. Right. Exactly. Our goal should not be to lose weight. Our goal should be to find a lifestyle that is healthy for us. And that might mean losing weight, but it doesn't mean once I hit that goal, the problem is that people, people celebrate and feel like it's mission accomplished and it is, but then we have to set the new goal, which is maintenance, sustain it. And, and that can be overwhelming in the same way that addiction can feel overwhelming for people to manage because we're not, you know, it's not like, all right, I stopped drinking. Today is day one without having had anything to drink. Mission accomplished. I'm sober. For well, no, you're not, right? It's like it is a it is a constant goal. It's a constant, it's a lifestyle change. Um, and so while addiction is unique and it is special because it because it is a disease. There are similarities with people who are uh, similarities to the experience with people who are not addicts in that we're talking about a lifestyle change and that can feel completely overwhelming, which is why there is a phrase, take it one day at a time. Because if you thought, all right, for the next 45 years, I have to face this struggle. That's the goal. That's a goal set way too high, right? We've already talked in this conversation about, about how it doesn't work when you set a goal that's impossible. And why it doesn't work if you set a goal that's too easy. 
it can feel impossible. It would be impossible if you if you set out on day one of sobriety and said, this is what the next 45 years of my life are going to be like. Maintaining this level of challenge would be overwhelming and people would give up. That's why that phrase one day at a time exists because we need to take a goal that is otherwise impossible and bring it down to something that's manageable. Um, a cool study. I know I keep referencing science. That's, that's my bread keep and butter. Oh yeah. Yeah. So there's a great, there's, there's actually many studies. My lab has done one of these studies looking at well, what happens to people when they set the goal at the wrong level, when they think about 45 years of my life are going to be like this. Um, Versus setting a goal that's more manageable. And for an addict, that might be just today. Like to getting through today is a stretch goal. It's a goal that like, I wonder if I can do it. I think I can. I'm going to try. And if I do, I'm going to feel really good about it. What happens? What we looked at, what others have looked at is the changes in people's body, their physiology, what's happening to their bodies as they set a goal that's impossible or set a goal that's too easy or set a goal that's just right. This stretch goal, inspiring, maybe outside of my, my bounds of what I think is possible. What we've looked at is systolic blood pressure. That's the top number on your blood pressure reading, like 110 over 80 or whatever yours happens to be. It's the top number. Psychologically, that is an index of your body's readiness to get up and go, to do something. Now, when those goals are physical, they've looked at horses, for instance, like, like the animals right before they're going to take off um, you know, to race around the track, a horse race, systolic blood pressure goes through the roof just before the gates are going to open. It's the, the horse's body is ready to like launch, right? Rocket launch mode. They're ready to go. Systolic blood pressure goes up. Um, for people, same thing, right? Before you're going to do something physical, systolic blood pressure in particular goes up because it's about your body's harnessing its energy in order to take a step or to take a jump or whatever it is that you're going to do. Now, that goal can be, that task can be mental. It might not be literally running out of the starting blocks, but the goal might be, all right, I'm going to do this crossword puzzle. I'm going to sit here quietly doing this crossword puzzle. Systolic blood pressure goes up right before you're about to, to take on that, that, um, that mental challenge. Hmm. Now, what's interesting is that when you set a goal that's impossible, and when you set a goal that's too easy, systolic blood pressure stays low. Systolic blood pressure goes up when you set a goal. That's the Goldilocks, like not too easy, not too hard, but just right. What that means is that your body is not harnessing its energy. It's not getting ready to do anything when the goal is too hard. When I say like you're kind of giving up even before you've gotten started, I actually mean that literally your body is not readying itself to do anything when you mentally know there's no way like an addict who might be thinking 45 years of dealing with this life, this struggle, forget it. Forget it. Right. Yeah. And when you set a goal, that's too easy your mind and your body know, like, I don't need to do anything. Like I'm going to get this done anyway. You know, okay. Have breakfast today. My systolic blood pressure will not go up because I am confident I can accomplish having breakfast today. Mm. So when we think about addiction, there, there's very unique aspects of it, but shared similarities with some of uh, the goals that we set that are that require lifestyle changes. We have to think about how are we talking to ourselves about what it is that we want to accomplish. We want to aim to define those personal goals uh, in that sweet spot of moderately challenging and um, but not impossible, so that we can take advantage of all of what our brain and body do to help catalyze steps in the right direction. And that all happens when when we take some time to think about how do we want to calibrate our expectations for ourselves. Interesting. Interesting. I love like this 
balancing act of like the individual versus the collective. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the question is this, like when it comes to an addict or someone trying to achieve their goals, like what, it, like what is the difference in the balance that they need between or how, how much do the biological factors play in versus let's say the environment for trying to perceive that goal? Cause take into account, like, you know, my, my brother, I've shared this on the show it, uh, is an addict has struggled with this for a long time with opiates and it wasn't until he got into a new environment that he was able to see different people that are similar to him. That is mm-hmm. an environment that doesn't have, you know, bottles laying around or mm-hmm. needles laying around, things like that. And then it starts to kind of have this nice symbiotic or symbiosis between. So anyways, biological and, and external factors. like Yeah, all of that matters. Mm-hmm. All of that matters exactly for the reasons that you've articulated and the experience that you just shared. And again, similar principles apply for addicts and for people who are not. In the book, I talk about visual sparks and the the way that we construct our our visual environments is going to prompt actions that can be healthy or not healthy, that are going to promote our goal or going to thwart our attempts at meeting our goal. And oftentimes we don't realize that. We're all stuck at home right now. And COVID weight gain is a thing um, that, you know, a minimum of 35% of people are admitting to, are aware of and are willing to admit to it. So, you know, one out of three people that we're seeing is um, accepting that this is just a part of what has happened. And we can, you know, and a lot of that has to do with, of course, our ability to exercise the way that we want, um, but also the challenges of what we see or what, you know, a lot of us are probably working on our dining room table. So we're working in much closer to proximity to a kitchen than we usually do when we go into the office. Every time we walk by that fridge, it's cueing us. It's triggering us. It's it's triggering like literally a biological response in our brain. Food reward. We, we evolutionarily, we have been designed to be rewarded by the sight and, and the consumption of food. And so if we're spending our day working next to the thing that for like millions of years, we have grown a reward system to respond to, we are visually sparking our cueing in action that in this context uh, is not conducive to good health. We're overeating, we're snacking too much. Um, and we can, you know, think about other things that we can do about how we can construct our visual environment in a way that will help promote better choices. So, you know, one suggestion might be at the edge of your bed, don't leave your slippers. In winter time, it's snowy outside, it's a miserable day in New York City right now. You might want to just cozy up in your warm blanket and your big fluffy slippers. Try swapping out the slippers for your running shoes instead. Leave the yoga mat at the edge of your bed so that the first thing that you see, that you touch, that you're experiencing is something that cues, that visually sparks exercise rather than cozy, cuddly, you know, um, decompression. We want to energize ourselves, and we can try to remove those cues that, um, that are suggesting um, relaxation and increase the number of visual cues that might spark um, our, our exercise. So Emily, I'm going to give you a scenario. You've just been appointed CEO of a company. Congratulations. Thank it's a you. Blank, it's a blank slate. <laughs> what do you do to build the environment? What are the, what's the message to the team, the reward system that you want to build in? And how do you balance the individual and the collective environment? What would you do? Well, I think as a, as a CEO of this fabulous new company, you know, my job first is to create the right culture. It's to create a culture where people feel that they can grow, where it's okay to admit mistakes. It's okay to ask for help, where we don't reward only successes, but we, re- we reward effort well spent. Um, 
re, we, we come might call those smart failures. So how can you do that? When you're the team leader, what can you do to, to make that happen? Well, for me, what I would do is start by admitting mistakes. I try to do that with my team now. The more that I read, the more that I realize where I have gone wrong, which is, um, I know I send out messages all the time to say like, oh, congratulations, this six, these six people just won an award. What I do now is say like, these 12 people submitted for this award, congratulations, and, and we'll see what happens. So you don't have to wait until something tangible, till you know, uh, a plaque comes somebody's way. We reward effort. We commend effort. And, and I talk about the failures that I've experienced along the way. So I try to talk, you know, somebody's prepping for a presentation that they're going to give and they're anxious. I tell them about like, not the first time, but the 10th time I gave a presentation, I thought I was over my anxiety of public speaking. And I stood up there, saw somebody who, who triggered a bad memory for me. And I froze because I thought like, <gasps> I can't present with this person in front of me. And for, I felt like 10 minutes, I couldn't say anything. It was probably like 10 seconds, but still like even the audience was like, what's going on? She's not talking. And so I try to tell these stories that like, not just personalize me. I'm not trying to like, you know, take myself off this pedestal, but to say, to normalize the experience of, of experiencing um, obstacles of, mm. of failure. So that's how we institutionalize the idea it. that, that it's about effort and that we are all a work in progress. Um, and a second thing, you know, uh, especially is how we talk about people's successes. Again, like I've said a million times, and as you saw, I have a kid who's four years old. It is my knee jerk reaction to say, oh, Maddie, you're so smart. And I say that to my team members, too, like, oh, my God, you're a great public speaker. You're a natural scientist. And that's terrible language to use. It feels good in the moment. My kid smiles. My teammates, you know, my my team is is proud that their boss gave them a compliment. But at the end of the day, it actually does them a disservice because again, it, it gives them this label. You are this person so that if they struggle, if they find that there's a problem, then they feel like, oh, I can't tell her because she thinks I'm the smart one. She thinks I'm the good presenter. She thinks that I'm the, the, the master data analyst. And I can't tell her that I'm not living up to that, her belief about who I am. Hmm. So even when we're giving compliments, there is room for growth. And for me, running this company, it's about talking about effort. Again, praising the effort, acknowledging, rewarding, commending the effort that's put into something. So rather than, oh, Maddie, you're so smart. It's, oh, Maddie, you just sat there for 10 minutes working really hard. Or like, oh, that's incredible. You just spent the last two weeks analyzing this data set. You know, I can't believe you probably learned so much that you can share with us. So um, it's not putting labels on people. Good, bad labels, of course, no, but good labels also, no. So those are a couple of things mm. that I would do. It's first create the culture. Those are concrete ways that you can create a culture that encourages honesty and promotes a growth orientation. Um, in terms of health, you, I'm all for the tech companies' uh, snack bars and their like happy hour every hour kind of atmosphere. I do think that that's really important for camaraderie um, and for freeing the brain when it's when it gets stuck. You want to be able to take a break and keeping people in their seats because the snacks are right there, so they don't have to leave the office to go get them. But you know, there's been big studies done about what's happening to Google employees, and they're gaining a lot of weight. That's what's happening. Facebook employees are gaining weight because of all the free snacks, right? So, but they can they have made changes. 
So I would have the snacks, but I would make sure that the uh, non-nutritious ones are behind opaque containers or behind closed doors. Everyone still has access to them, but when you're walking past to hit your next meeting or off to the bathroom, you're not seeing something that's going to trigger you like, oh, M&Ms, I'm just going to grab a handful of those. Mm. Instead of, oh, a bottle of water, I'll grab one of those. Or, oh, I'll grab a green tea rather than the coffee if caffeine is the problem, right? So it's about, you know, uh, visually sparking healthier choices and making it more challenging, but not impossible to, to snack on something that's, that's not so great. About constructing an environment that is conducive to the right choices. Those are a couple. Oh, yeah. yeah, just a couple. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you can go on, <laughs> on, but you know, it's just interesting from a business standpoint, you know, what a social psychologist would do uh, for the culture, for normalizing failure, for uh, making sure that no one's labeled in a, in a sense. So uh, this all boils down to leadership. So let's bring this home, Emily. What is your definition of a real leader? A leader is somebody who gives opportunities to others. You can, nobody can go it alone. A leader can't go alone. A leader is offering the opportunity for people to become whoever it is that they're going to become and, and, and to, to go as far as they're going to go and not constrain the direction of their growth. It's to be the soil and the fertilizer and let them become the plants, whatever that, whatever that is going to be for them. Amazing. Emily, thank you so much. Learned so much today. Thank you. Had such a fun time. Learned a lot. We went everywhere today. Though. We went everywhere yeah. that we need to go today. And I, I learned a lot. <laughs> I, and the, the one thing that you did not mention in your company, your blank slate company, was that you would have your employees play music to synchronize. <laughs> we're going to make oh, sure. I was just assuming we had a music company, exactly. but that's what I was running. Assuming that we were together in a physical area. Yes. Well, Emily, it's been a pleasure having you on the Relators podcast all one hour of this. I hope you stick around and answer. I think we had one question fly in there. Uh, but for Great. Emily uh, about Shedis, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, give opportunities to others, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Emily. Thanks. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Emily Balchettis. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And folks, if you didn't know by now, all of these episodes are recorded live on our Crowdcast channel and are waiting for you to come participate in the discussion. Emily went on to answer a few more questions after this show, and I'd hate for you to miss another opportunity to get one-on-one with another real leader. And also, folks, if you haven't yet left a review and you're on Apple Podcasts, please go to our channel, scroll all the way down to the bottom, and let us know what you think about the show. See, I got in trouble yesterday. I was at the, uh, the Apple store. And my wonderful customer service personnel, Conrad, was interested in the show. I told him, hey, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review. And he caught me real quick. He says, well, Kevin, I don't give out five-star reviews like that. And I said, you know what? You're right. Be honest with this. Folks, this might not be a five-star review show for you. If it's not, let us know. Go all the way down to the bottom. Leave a review and let us know what you think and how we can improve. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and leave a review like Conrad from the Apple Store. Goodbye.